Hello and welcome to the Lancet Psychiatry Podcast. My name is Niall Boyce and I'm the editor. And today we're talking about first episode mania with Dr. Samir Jauhar of the Department of Psychological Medicine at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience, King's College London. Hello, Samir. Good morning. So we're, we're talking about a paper which has been published in the Lancet Psychiatry on the case for improved care and provision of treatment for people with first episode mania. And I suppose my, my first question is, why is this paper necessary? How many people are we talking about who experience first episode mania? Yes, well, this paper shouldn't really be necessary because you would hope that the care for people who present with the first episode mania would be clear. There'd be a clear pathway for what they provide or what we provide in terms of our interventions. But when we went through things, it just wasn't clear. You asked me about the number of people presenting to services. That's a weakness in itself. The epidemiology of incidents of bipolar illness isn't as strong as we'd like it. It's not as strong as schizophrenia. We know around 15% of people presenting to first episode psychosis services will have a diagnosis of bipolar illness. But we don't have clearer data than that. And that was one of the things that motivated me to actually write this piece. And if individuals are experiencing first episode mania, what sorts of presentations are you talking about? Because this is a younger age group. So, so that might differ to, to older people who are experiencing this? I think, well, from what we know from the literature and clinical experience, people might present with hypomania, so not as significant an episode before the first episode of mania. But the definition of mania would be the same no matter what age someone comes into services. So their presentation would still fit the criteria for mania. I think the important point that you've brought up there is younger people present with less florid episodes of mania before their first fully blown manic episode. And uh, who would they first present to? Is this primary care, secondary care? So with hypomania and depression, really, people present to primary care. Um, when we've done retro when we've looked at retrospective analyses and studies, people tend to present with depression before the age of eighteen. The depression is different from an, a normal or prototypic depression that a GP would see in that the person will not have an adequate response to initial SSRI medication. There might be a family history. They might be sleeping a lot more, hypersomnia, hyperphagia, and people use the term leaden paralysis, but essentially they will be more slowed up and there will be the presence of psychosis there as well. So the clinical presentation is very different for the depression, which presents before the age of 18, and the presentation of hypomania after that, it's there. So uh, the big question for me is, to what extent would intensive intervention at this point make a difference? Now there's a fairly good body of evidence that this does make a difference in psychosis and diagnoses that, that we call schizophreniform disorders. Mm, mm. What about bipolar? Absolutely. And that's why when I was writing this, so this paper came because I went to Melbourne on holiday. And when you're on holiday, you meet with colleagues. So I met with colleagues in the origin service. And we we're discussing this problem with bipolar illness because it's not very specific, as you say, if someone presents with depression or what you might define as hypomania. However, if someone presents with mania, everyone knows about it by its very definition. 
someone has to be receiving inpatient care and significant care and a significant impairment in their functioning. So for me, that aspect of things is fairly clear. Okay. And what you're saying is that if we were to treat people who have presented at this point, that, that uh, there's something you mentioned in the paper, which is a, a great question for those of us who've sat MRC psych exams, the kindling hypothesis. Mm -hmm. um, what is the kindling hypothesis? Is it uh, valid or not? And how does this relate to your general point about early intensive treatment? That's a good question. So the kindling hypothesis was a hypothesis based on seizure thresholds with animal and behavioral animal work, suggesting that electrical stimulation um, would cause seizures, but after a certain period of time, you wouldn't require the same degree of stimulation and you'd have seizures irrespective of that stimulation. So once you set the system up, the system then takes on its um so it has its own life. It yeah, just begins to run exactly. itself. Exactly. It takes so on its own life. So you're needing fewer stimuli to produce these episodes. Precisely. Now, it is some distance between the animal model and yes. <laughs> the clinic, isn't yes. it? Yes. And it's not as clear in the literature. But what we did is I went, you know, I asked this question myself. If I had, I look after people with first episode psychosis. I've seen people with first episode mania for the last seven years. If I was looking after someone after their first manic episode, what are the odds? of this coming back. How relapsing and remitting is it? So we went through the literature, and the literature isn't great, and we've talked about it in the paper, but the identifiable evidence suggests that it's a relapsing remitting condition. I don't think there's any contention within the field in regard to that. And if it is relapsing remitting, and we have treatments to prevent relapses, well, it's, an, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, me. it's a no-brainer, but on the other hand, we've heard lots about psychosis, but virtually nothing about bipolar yes. in this sort of context. Now, there might be various reasons for this. Now, bipolar itself sits very strangely as a condition, because we have this dichotomy between psychotic and, and mood disorders, mm. and bipolar doesn't really quite fit into to either mm. camp. It, it's uh, And of course, the definition is now so broad with uh, ICD-11, I think, taking the bipolar 2 yes. diagnosis into account. Yes. So don't don't you suffer here a bit from the 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 lack of clarity on the nature of bipolar disorder with clinicians maybe with the public in general. I think that's why we focused on mania because the definition of mania is very clear and when you use a definition of mania and do a structured clinical interview you get a reliability of 0.9 which they did for the DSM-5 field trials. I think that's the Tolland paper and the Diamond study. But 0.9 for inter-rater reliability between psychiatrists is, is brilliant. So actually the reliability of that diagnosis when you use a structured questionnaire is there. And if you spoke to someone in the street, your grandmother would pick up if someone was manic or not. You know, um, And I think the reliability of that diagnosis is there for mania. That's why we're focusing on mania with this paper because if you were to look at hypomania or bipolar spectrum it does become a bit more fuzzy and it's less clear so we thought well the first thing is pick a presentation that everyone can recognize pick a presentation that's reliable in terms of diagnosis and that we have identifiable treatments that work that prevent recurrence let's talk about those treatments now we we've, mm. we've been talking earlier about this um interesting translation between animal models and human models, but one of the great success stories there is, of course, lithium. So presumably lithium and other mood stabilizers would be part of the treatment? Yes, well, with young people you offer the treatments, isn't it? And 
they make up their own minds, you present them with the evidence. And what was startling here is, yes, we've known about lithium, as you say, for longer than the 100 years. We know about the efficacy in preventing mainly manic, but also depressive episodes. But there's only one trial of lithium maintenance treatment in people presenting after a first episode of mania. And that's quite something. And it suggests that a beneficial effect of lithium, if something works acutely, it should work over the maintenance phase. So the evidence was suggesting, yes, we should be offering lithium to people to make an informed decision about their future care. And we should be facilitating that. But this is the problem, though, with psychiatry. Because we have so many of what, what you'd call legacy treatments, mm. we have medications which have been in use for... 50, 60, sometimes more years, mm. and they were introduced at a time where the rigorous trial evidence that we now need to introduce a new drug or a new therapy into treatment was simply not extant. Yes. And f further trials, funding for them seems somewhat unlikely. Mm. It puts people like you in a bit of a bad position because you've identified this group. You've identified that uh, treatment's needed. But where are you going to get that evidence from? Yes. If we're not going, you would hope that we'll, we'd really, first off, if different centers in the real world are identifying first episode mania and their interventions, people are using real world data, they're using electronic registers, and you can look at the real world data as people are doing now, generally, and say what's been beneficial and what hasn't. Of course, there'll be caveats to real world data as opposed to RCTs but it's still there, it's still used. Um, Scandinavians have used case registers very well. So my thoughts would be, and again, why wouldn't a funding body want to fund young people with bipolar, the first episode bipolar? But if, if they don't, I think if it's identified and we have decent case register, real-world data, we can at least say to our patients, this is what's available, this is what we can see, and other people presenting to services, you make an informed choice about your treatment. And the other thing, you know, I found interesting the lithium trial was that you didn't have to use a high dose of lithium. You needed, a, you know, a level of I think it was 0.6 in the trial. But we use low doses when I w work with people clinically to decrease side effects. And I think that's one of the mantras that we got from the first episode psychosis literature with people with, you know, um, non-effective psychotic illness, using low doses and really seeing people through. So to answer your question, if funding bodies aren't going to fund this research, which I hope they will, but if they're not, at least we're going to identify people and they're going to be followed up and people will have data. So let's talk about psychological therapies for a moment, because this is, of course, a very controversial area within psychosis as to whether uh, whether psychological thera therapies have an effect at all mm. and what effect they have and who they should be used for. Is there any more clarity in this group? There's no clarity in terms of first episode mania. So we're borrowing really from the literature of psychotherapies and bipolar illness in general. And group psychoeducation comes out really in almost every study, well, every analysis. And when you look at the literature, as the best option to be offering people at a commonsensical level, it makes sense. Um, and hopefully people are more nuanced in the fact that they're actually offering a psychosocial intervention to people, because I think people need that. Um, the evidence base for group psychoeducation is good, and you have the study in Denmark where they offered that in conjunction to 
uh, pharmacotherapy for people with their first, second or third episode. And presumably there's a social approach as well. Absolutely. It's, I think, it's what we do when we look after people in the first episode. It's the person, it's their environment, and you're working really in all those facets. It's the same principles of early intervention, vocational rehabilitation, getting people back to functioning within their environment and letting them make informed choices. And this brings us to the personal account by someone who experienced first episode mania. And they're, they're talking about uh, their experience of services, which, which isn't great, which is, is mixed. They have some yes. very good experiences, but also some less, less good experiences. And one of the things they say is, um, I went to the hospital on several occasions, but they refused me. This deeply saddened me. Uh, this made me feel like I wasn't being heard, and I felt like people weren't taking my mental health seriously enough. Yes, and this is, this was a young person who was coming from a very high level of functioning before. His illness would have met criteria for mania. I, I'd seen him a few times, and it's it's a fairly typical story because it's not he's not presenting in the same way as someone with a first episode of non-effective illness might present. And also, as you alluded to before, when people present with established mania, people are used to certain symptoms coming along. They might not be used to the irritability in a young man, or psychomotor agitation, or the change in functioning for a young person, um, as opposed to someone with established illness. And I think, well, you know, his story was one of the stories that motivated us to think about this. So in terms of the future, what would you like to see? Well, first of all, we need psychiatrists to develop the diagnostic skills of their grandmothers. That's the first <laughs> thing we've established. Um, we also have established from this that partnership with individuals experiencing these things is very important. But in terms of the specifics, what do services need to do to address this need which you've identified? I think, yeah, well, first off, I think psychiatrists have the skills of their grandmothers. My colleagues That's reassuring. really hard. Well, you know, I work with psychiatrists and I think Everyone takes a real pride in what yes. they do. What would be, I think what we touched on was whether you like it or not, guidelines do affect practice. And guidelines need to be specific. People presenting to first episode psychosis services who've had a first episode of mania should be offered different interventions. It should be recognized. And the treatments offered there should be clearer. So, for example, NICE says if you've presented with the first episode of psychosis, uh, after one to two years, you can make a choice about treatment. That would be different for someone with a first episode of bipolar illness because generally they'll have presented with bad episode of depression before, probably hypomania before. You know their illness is recurrent, and it's different from someone presenting with a non-affective psychosis. Um, that's been picked up by the Canadians and the International Society for Bipolar Disorder, who are much more structured in saying after a first episode of mania, you should be considering maintenance pharmacotherapy. And as you alluded to before, the, psych the psychotherapies that are helpful for people with bipolar illness are different to people who have a non-effective psychotic illness. And I think a lot of therapists and healthcare professionals will tailor the treatment to the person, but if we're going to get good standards of care, I think guidelines are going to have to be more precise, more clear, and more nuanced. So some learning points there for psychiatry in general, as well as your specific well, area. Learning points for myself. Brilliant.
Svejaha, thank you very much, and thanks to you, the listener, for downloading and listening to this podcast. I hope you'll join us again next time, but for now, goodbye. Goodbye.